Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 129. Buddhism may need a plan B. Zen teacher Norman Fisher joins us to discuss the vital importance of translating Buddhist practices and principles to all sorts of non-Buddhist secular contexts, what he calls our plan B. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. Today, I'm speaking over the phone with Zen teacher Norman Fisher. Norman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. And just a little background so that people who aren't familiar with you can have a sense of kind of what you do in the world. You're a Zen abbot, a poet, an author, and you're also teaching in various non-Buddhist contexts as well, which we'll get into. And in terms of your Zen background, you were a senior student of Shunri Suzuki Roshi. Is that correct? Actually, it's not. I, I came to the Zen Center just as he was dying. So oh. I was ordained uh, originally by Richard Baker, and my root teacher is uh, Sojin Weitzman. Oh, okay. Very cool. So I never, I, all, my, all my teachers, I mean, I studied with uh, Asian teachers, but all my basic Zen teachers have been Americans. Okay, nice. So you're kind of like a second-generation teacher. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Interesting. And you also have a strong background in the Jewish tradition as well, so that's something that you also bring to your work and to your life. Yes. Very cool. So you're quite an eclectic dude, Norman. I like it. I guess. It turned out that way, you know. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the intention, but it turned out that way. And that kind of ties into part of what we wanted to speak with you today about, which is you wrote an article recently in Buddha Dharma magazine, and it's entitled, Why We Need a Plan B. And in that article, you discuss different ways that Buddhist principles and practices are being transmitted in the West. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what these different plans are. What is plan A and what is plan B? Well, my idea is that plan A is basic religious Buddhism in all the different traditions with all the trappings. You know, like when I teach Zen retreats, as I just I just completed one up in the Pacific Northwest, we do a very traditional Zen retreat in silence, with robes, with Buddhist services, with prostrations. My uh, Dharma talks are all usually on Buddhist sutras, Buddhist themes, and we study normative Zen and other Buddhist texts. So that's plan A, and that's my kind of uh, Dharma root and something that I find gives me a lot of uh, strength and I keep coming back to it. It's important to me. It's my commitment and my obligation. But uh, there's so many people who want to access Dharma, and uh, for one reason or another, either they have uh, a different religion or they are allergic to religion or they just don't want to be too much of a groupie, you know, like really joining something, even if they are interested in Buddhism. So for those people, uh, a more open and eclectic approach is you know, really necessary if they're going to be able to access the teachings. And besides that, there's a lot of people who are very committed to their professions and who feel like their work is at the center of their lives. So to apply meditation practice 
to their work and to make work a spiritual path or part of a spiritual path is a very interesting proposition for me and a lot of the work that I do is that adapting meditation practice to specific professions so I have I work with lawyers and we talk about how to use meditation practice to be more effective more kind more have more depth in legal practice I work with conflict resolution professionals in the same way with business people with people in technology industry so that's been you know really quite interesting to me as well so I think we we need all this I think the old idea of religion that's inside a box inside a package and that the package is inside the church or the monastery needs to be revised we need to have that because I think there's depth in that but we also need to open the box, open the package, and let people have access. And one thing that I find interesting is that I've seen in other places you've kind of acknowledged that mindfulness, even that is not value-free. And so it's not as if you're saying we just strip everything away from Buddhism and create this completely secular thing and that it's completely independent of, of people's values or people's moral sensibilities. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that, how... Plan B is not a stripped-down version of Buddhism. No, I, I don't think it's uh, a stripped-down version. I don't think, in other words, it's not like uh, when I'm doing so-called Plan B work, I've got all these like Buddhist secrets that I'm withholding, you know what I mean, and I'm taking some watered-down version and offering it to uh, these other people. I don't feel like that at all. I think it's just a matter of translation. Mm. It's a matter of translating the whole of it from one language to another. And, you know, as a writer and a poet, I realize that there's always something lost in translation, but there's always something gained, too. Mm. So it's not a matter of watering down, withholding something, uh, and just giving something else. It's it's really a matter of uh, translation with all the upsides and, and downsides of that. But when I first start thinking about this stuff many, many years ago. Of course, at that time, the and still today, the most dramatic presentation of Dharma without the Buddhist language was the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction course at the University of Massachusetts that John Kabat-Zinn created. So I wanted to investigate that, so I actually went there and uh, sat in on some of the courses, uh, had a dialogue with John, because at that time people were saying just what you what you said, that this must be a watered-down version of Buddhism. This, there must be something wrong with this. How can you take the Buddhism away from the Buddhism? But uh, I was uh, really quite astonished by the effectiveness with which John was seriously able to communicate the whole of the Dharma, the essence of the Dharma, into terms of mindfulness and stress reduction. There was no watering down. There was no fooling around. He was being very straightforward and very honest with people, but simply using a language that they could understand and meeting them where they were. So I became instantly <laughs> converted to his approach and saw that he, he really knew what he was doing. He and I have remained friends ever since then, and I really admire that he's a one-man plan B all by himself. You know. right. He's been traveling all over the world, seeding all kinds of projects and groups uh, well beyond the original project at UMass. So no, I don't think that these other uh, efforts are in any way watering down or 
uh, somehow stripping away. I think they're just different versions. I mean, you know, in, in a way, um, Buddhist teachings, especially Zen teachings, can tend to be a little esoteric, even though Zen is dedicated to the application of practice to daily life, sometimes it can appear a little esoteric. And so directly apply Zen insights and Buddhist insights to, let's say, a particular profession is to uh, really articulate them much more, in a much more detailed way than you would in Zen, where you're really, traditionally, you're applying it to sweeping the floor and cutting vegetables. Here, you're applying it to much more complicated questions of human interaction and uh, interaction with society and the, and the world we live in. You may argue the translation loses something, but it also gains in that department quite a bit. Right. I find it really interesting. It's really creative work and very, very interesting. Yeah, I saw that you were giving a series of teachings or lectures at Google, and I thought that was really fascinating. Oh, it was. I mean, I learned a lot. It's great to work with these really bright young people who... You know, the person who comes to the Zen Center already has read books and, you know, has lots of ideas about why this is important and why this is worth doing. So a lot of stuff you don't have to engage. Everybody just assumes it. But at Google, you know, people are, are saying, well, now, why would we want to sit there in silence? What's the point of that? How does it help? How does it help the world? How does it help me? And so this kind of, like, root questioning from some very intelligent people who are not shy about bringing these things up, I found really challenging and really, really interesting. What kinds of things did you find from that group of people, like those young engineering, programming, geeky types? <laughs> well, what was interesting there was we developed the language of emotional intelligence. So this was not about get more efficient in your programming by focusing your mind with meditation. It wasn't that. It was all about Increase your emotional intelligence. Increase your ability to listen to other people, to be empathetic with others, to be aware of what's going on within yourself on the theory that these things are really valuable, not only for your ability to work together in a team to get good results and develop great stuff, but also for your personal life, for your human relationships, for your well-being, for your happiness. So that was the kind of language that we developed at Google because people really needed to know that there was something in it for them. You know, why were they going to do this? They really needed to know that. And they really demanded, show me. You know, so, so we did that. And, and the courses were very effective there. And at Google, you know, they're big into measuring oh, yeah. uh, the effectiveness of everything. Everything is codified and they want numbers. In fact, if you offer a course there, I didn't know this at the time. It would have made me nervous, but... It turns out if you offer a course there, they rate the course at the end of the course, and you can't go on unless you get a, a certain rating. Oh, wow. Above. Yeah, so, so, but we consistently had those ratings, and people consistently reported rather amazing changes in their ability to listen to other people, in, the, in their human relationships, in their senses of themselves, in their degree of happiness and engagement. So we, we would do like a, a six- or eight-week course, and in the process of that, pretty amazing changes were reported afterward. Yeah, that that really doesn't surprise me being kind of geeky myself that especially people that are engineers, I mean, that might be the thing that would draw them in the most is emotional intelligence because that's exactly. the thing that geeks tend to be the worst at for some reason. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's something that they all that they feel they need work on, so it really appealed to them. 
But this whole line of thought, I have to give credit to uh, my colleague at Google, uh, Meng, who was one of the first hundred engineers at Google, one of the early, early guys at Google. And now he's sort of a uh, grandfather, even though he's in his 30s. Yeah. His job title is Jolly Good Fellow. Oh, yeah. What it says says on his business card. And, And it was him who really wanted to bring in the meditation, and he got a hold of us. Also, it was him who thought of the idea of emotional intelligence applied to meditation as the way to go. Brilliant. So I really give him credit for that. And he's a wonderful guy and, and really instrumental in bringing meditation to Google. Yeah, and he's the quote-unquote Google guy, right? He's the person that gets his picture taken with all the celebrities. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's him. <laughs> yeah, I, that's heard, him. I heard about him and that he was a Buddhist practitioner. That's cool. Another thing that you mentioned that I thought was really fascinating, just as a side note in that article, was that the plan B stuff is really important too because you can reach kind of more people as a meditation teacher and really make a living that way. Whereas if you're just doing the plan A traditional dharmic approach, there might not really be enough people to support you in doing what you love. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yes. Well, this is something really, really important to me because I'm training people to be teachers and I've got a whole bunch of people in my groups who are beginning to teach now, I mean, it really gives me a lot of pain that they're all ready to teach, they're capable of teaching, they're really good at it, but they all have to do other jobs because as things stand now, even though many of them are running their own centers, the centers don't supply enough income for them to live on. And when you think about it, this might be like the pivot point of the whole Buddhist slash meditation movement. If people can't earn a living doing this and people are doing it in their spare time in the midst of busy lives, the movement is tremendously limited. Whereas if you have a whole cadre of people who are, who are going to be able to earn a living at this by entrepreneuring their, their skills, the movement is way stronger and the goodness that can be offered to people in general is much, much increased. So. In the Buddhist movement, all the Buddhist schools are somewhat different. But in general, I would say that when you compare, say, Christianity, where, where there are ministers who earn a living doing that, and all kinds of church people who get paid, Buddhist teachers, on the whole, can't support themselves. Or if they, if they can, they've got to do other things, or they have to live pretty marginally. That there'd be livelihoods for people who are skilled in these areas, I think is a crucial step. And it's since... The Buddhist movement was begun in a very idealistic way, thinking of financial security was not something that anybody was ever thinking about. And so it's built up a kind of attitude in the community that that's not something we do. That's not something we're about. And so nobody has really taken on this question or thought about it. But in fact, the long-term health of the movement, with all the good that it can offer, pretty much depends on this, I think. And would you say this is also part of the way Buddhism is adapting to our culture? It is, but I think the returns are not in. In other words, my ideas about Plan B... Now, I'm a fully supported teacher. I don't have any other things that I do other than than my work. But And there are others, too, of course, but not that many. Right. So I don't think the returns are in. In other words... Uh, whether this is going to work or not, to me, is uh, still in doubt. I mean, uh, that's why I'm writing these articles. I'm arguing for it, and I want people to think about it. But at this moment, 
I don't think it's clear, at least as far as I know, whether people who want to devote their lives to Buddhist practice and offering it to others will be able to earn a livelihood or not from it. I don't think it's clear. I see. And I think that, that in the end, you know, the need for it is there. The public understanding of the virtue of it is there. So I'm hopeful that that will lead to ways for people to earn a living. But at this moment, you, you couldn't really say that we're there yet. And do you, do you feel like there's got to be something of a shift in the cultural attitude of Western Buddhists in order to have a shot at this? Because like you're saying, there's this, at least in the beginning of you know, the 70s and stuff, there's this idea that you know, the Dharma has to be free in some way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In the beginning, the Buddhist movement in the West was very self-consciously counter-cultural. We don't want to mess with the mainstream people. We don't like them. We're different. You know, we, we reject those values. And that was the beginning of it, and that was true in my case as well. That is little by little changing. So I think the movement is changing. There was a time, like when John first started doing mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, I think a lot of the Buddhist world was very dubious about it, exactly because he was going mainstream. Now it's many years later, and I think the Buddhist movement has changed quite a bit. And I, and I think most people who are involved in the Buddhist movement in the West, particularly, I, I know mostly about America, are positively disposed toward all this kind of stuff now and support it and think it's a good idea. So I think that is changing. But I think what mostly needs to change is also society and its expectations and needs. For instance, the argument has been very well made that a person in our society who's suffering some sort of spiritual, emotional, psychological difficulty will go to a therapist and will spend $150 an hour and maybe go twice a week for six months, a year, five years. That's a well-established path in our culture. But that that same person might realize that a path of meditation uh, with a spiritual mentor and a community might do just as well and perhaps even more to engage his or her problems and that that's worth supporting at a similar level that he would support a therapist, that's not very well established in our society. I think people, uh, it, it has to do with uh, how we view religion. People have a very 19th century attitude about religion. Well, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a believer. So why would I go to a Buddhist center? Uh, or why would I access uh, Buddhist-style meditation? Because I'm, you know, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm a Christian or I'm a secular person. Therefore, it never occurs to someone that, gosh, this might be more helpful to me than my therapy or as helpful. So we need to change that attitude in society. People need to realize that regardless of whether you're a quote-unquote believer or a Buddhist or not, uh, there's a lot of benefit in these practices, and they ought to be really available and accessible. Meng's idea, he would always say, well, 25 years ago, nobody went to the gym now we've well established through research in our society that exercise is really important, so there's a gym on every corner. Well, why isn't there a meditation hall on every corner? Why haven't we yet established the fact that some spiritual endeavor is just as important for inner health as exercise is for the body? So there ought to, ought to be um, meditation halls on every corner, and people should know 
how important this is and feel like it makes sense to access it and pay for it so that there could be people to offer it. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. I I couldn't argue with that line of thinking. <laughs> well, right, I know it makes sense to you. You do this program. <laughs> it's the rest of the people who are listening to the program that it has to make sense to. Mm. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I think it will. I mean, there has been a tremendous, as you, I'm sure you know, a tremendous spike in research on meditation just in the last three or four years. It's exponentially increased. And all the research is always showing the same thing. And meditation is actually effective. It really works. It has all kinds of benefits. So people seem to believe in, in research and scientific data. But just talk to your friends who do this practice, and uh, that's probably enough to convince you even without the scientific data. Mm. Yeah, I like that in one piece of, of your writing that I was reading recently in your journal, you'd mentioned that basically all the scientific experiments and data are showing us kind of what we already know and that it'd be, yeah, it'd be right. kind of nice if they'd uh, go ahead and just use some of that money toward actually supporting some of the uh, infrastructure. I know. <laughs> I know it's funny you know like I'm going to uh, do uh, a retreat for for the army for caregivers and chaplains so uh, the army is going to spend 50 cents to pay me to do the retreat and then they're going to spend a million dollars to study the effects of the retreat you know, over time. So, nice. you know, <laughs> this the idea that all this money, huge amount, you know, it's very expensive to, to conduct research, very expensive. A million-dollar research grant is not a unusual grant. A million-dollar gift to uh, Dharma Center or for teacher training or something like that is very, very rare. So it's a little out of scale. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.